Do you hear what that is? That is, yeah, I hear it. It's scary <laughs> as fuck. I'm out of here. Right? I, I think that means that it's time, and today is officially Silent Hill Day at Dark Knight of the Podcast. Um, and Silent Hill Day means that Troy and I will be serving up to our fans a party helping of all things Silent Hill. Right, Troy? Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. I know you're excited. I know you're excited. At least the movie adaptation of Silent Hill. The video game is like its own entity, but the movie, we're going to be getting in deep with it. Mm-hmm. And we've got it all. We've got crumbling, smoke-infested hellscapes. Burning children. Burn, burning demon ash babies. <laughs> we've got the dude in the pyramid-themed bondage ensemble wielding a massive butter knife that I secretly find super sexy, but I don't want to delve into that because it makes me scared. And then we've got those busty nurses. <laughs> those busty nurses who can't see anything, but they sure can sensually moan. Uh, and so to help us keep our facts straight and our sexual preferences gay, we have an adorable horror guru and fellow podcast personality from Buddy's House of Horrors, we have Buddy Candela. Hi, Buddy. Hey, how's it going? Great to be here. Happy to see you guys. Yeah. <laughs> right? Yeah, you too. Thank you. Thank you for joining us on this journey of Silent yes, Hill. Yes, thank you. And thank you for specifically picking this movie. And yes. like right off the bat, it's so not what we're used to that I'm curious. I want to know like what what made you pick out of all the films? What made you pick Silent Hill? So, okay, so to back up a little bit on this. So I think originally we had talked about doing this back in June or something like that. And I was basically like, like, I'm open to review whatever. We can watch anything. And you had told me, Roger, you were like, we typically do films with the guests that they have never seen before. And for you, buddy, it might be a little bit difficult. So I was like, you know what? Just send me a list of a bunch of films and I will pick from your list because in general like it stresses me out like picking out films for people because I'm like oh my god what if this isn't the vibe (laughs) and like all this kind of things but luckily with this we all had to watch it separately it's not like I'm picking for people in the room but you had sent me this list of all these films and one of the films really stuck out to me um that I had not seen and that was the 2006 version of Silent Hill um and the, the the main reasons I picked this are threefold I guess one I've never seen it before, and I should have seen it, um, being a horror fan. Number two, I have a video coming out in a few weeks when I start my horror marathon in October when I'm putting out all kinds of podcasts about the top ten horror games of all time. Um, So I thought that would tie in very well with this review. And three, me and one of my friends have actually been playing through the original Silent Hill um, over on Twitch. So I was like, you know what? The film Silent Hill, never seen it, and this is the perfect opportunity to watch it. And I know Troy had never seen it either. Um, so this was a first for the both of us. Yeah. Had you seen it, Roger? Yes. Had you oh seen it? Actually, okay, okay. So first of all, I love that because, like, specifically, I love that you're exposing yourself to not only the movie, but the games. Like, Troy, you're watching this for a first-time viewer of the film, but I think going into this film, having some knowledge of the games is kind of vital to appreciate exactly how well they did with this movie as a movie adaptation of a video game. Because as a movie, it doesn't always gel, but if you know the history of the games, it's, I think, all the more impressive. Yeah, and I do not know the history of the game. I've never played the game. 
So that was sort of the reason I was I kind of always avoided this movie because it was a video game adaptation, and so many video game adaptations have been extremely uh, disappointing as films and as video game adaptations. So I was like, you know, when it came out, I was like, eh, you know, I'm not in any big rush to go see this. It was what 2006. Yeah, it was 2006. Uh, so yeah. So there was other things that are out during around that time. That was kind of the time of like the French extreme, you know, horror films that were coming out that I was really into. So I just avoided this one, but I had always heard like really good things about it. And, you know, I, I have, I've definitely noticed or am familiar with a lot of the imagery from the film. Uh, so I kind of had a bit, small little knowledge of it, but I'd never watched it until a couple nights ago. To prepare for this now, buddy, had you played the game prior to this? You know, this experience you just had doing it on Twitch. Did you grow up with the game? You played it before this, or was that your first exposure to the game as well? So I had not. So this is my first exposure to the world of Silent Hill. Um, although I was quite a gamer as a child, I was always like a Nintendo kid. So when it came to the horror games, except for the occasional Resident Evil. Um, there was pretty slim pickings over on Nintendo. Um, so that's partially why me and one of my co-hosts for my podcast, Buddy's House of Horror, um, Midnight Miles, as he's affectionately known on the show, um, he's a big horror gamer. Um, so basically I gave him free reign to introduce me to his top 10 horror games. Um, and so yeah, so right now... Um, I'm so slowly working my way through the Silent Hills, Resident Evil, stuff like that. All these games on PlayStation that I didn't get to experience as a kid. Um, and going back to Silent Hill just briefly, like, as far as, like, playing, like, the beginning portions of the game and watching the film, it's almost identical. Um, there's very few things in the beginning. that they, they gender swap the lead. Um, in the game, you're a guy named Harry. In this film, Sean Bean kind of takes on that role, but he's not very important to the overall story, which I'm sure we'll get into. Um, but yeah, I mean, the game, I mean, all the music from the game is the same music that you see in the film. Um, but probably like the biggest difference between the game and the film is Pyramid Head is not until the second game. The first game doesn't have anything to do with him at all. Um, so the film kind of blends together, like, the first, like, two games, and then there's references to other things in the series, like, throughout. Um, but for the most part, it's, it's mainly the first game with a few changes. Yeah, and I think one thing to acknowledge with this transition from game to film is this is a movie that it definitely made some artistic decisions, uh, changes to the formula, but overall, it very much stayed true to the tone of the game. And I think the reason it, at least six, one of the most successful elements of this film is the overall environment. And again, the tone that it sets, um, especially as it starts to transition into this like hellscape as we learn, as we progress further. And we'll get into it. But really, this movie just does a great job of capturing the energy and the vibe of the games. Even in some of the cinematography, it feels like directly taken from the games. So I'm really impressed with that. And I'm impressed how, even though some elements of the movie maybe don't hold up overall, the overall visual elements of the film, I think, do greatly. And I was really happy in revisiting this movie now, 2021, and seeing how much this movie has aged well, in my opinion. Though some of the CGI may be iffy, the overall look of this film and the tone it sets, 
it hits it. It hits the nail on the head, at least in my opinion. Um, and I also feel this is a film that requires repeat viewings in order to fully understand the story. Troy, as difficult as that may sound, <laughs> uh, <laughs> because it's while it's a long movie and it takes forever to land the fucking plane, there is a lot of meat on the bone with this one. There's a lot to the story. And as you kind of revisit it and understand who the characters are and how they play into the story and what it all means, there's a lot to unpack. And unpack it, we will. And we're going to do it with Buddy's help today. So, Buddy, thank you for being here. Uh, before we delve into the actual storyline of the film, um, tell us a little bit, just tell us about your podcast. Tell us about Buddy's House of Horrors. And tell us about these endeavors you've got right now. With I know you have a second podcast, correct? I do. Um, so, I guess I'll just go ahead and give you the whole spiel. You might have to try to rein me in a little bit. So... For those of you who don't know, my name is Buddy Candela. I am a filmmaker based out of Cleveland, Ohio, YouTuber, podcaster. Um, my main project that I'm working on right now is Buddy's House of Horror, which is a podcast. It's a YouTube show. Um, I have guests come on, interviews, um, stuff like that. Not all the episodes are podcasts, although it's mainly podcasts. There's also some video content as well. Um, like I do a series called 15 Phenomenal Facts where I'll break down a horror franchise or a specific film or last year I did one just on Halloween like the holiday like 15 facts of how Halloween came to be um I've done rankings on the channel like last year we ranked all of the Halloween films this year we're going to be ranking all of the Nightmare on Elm Street films and a lot of cool stuff I mean I try to keep the show open um I'm open to suggestions I've done like commentaries of public domain films before I'm actually working on a playlist on my YouTube channel right now, and it's just called The Best of Buddy's House of Horror, because at this point I'm at over, like, 100 episodes, I think, of everything that I've done, so I'm trying to, like, curate some of my personal favorite things that I've done into a playlist, um, like the Top 10 Horror Sequels was a great one that I did, um, and then also I do another podcast called Two Nerds, a podcast. Um, we might be going through a little bit of a rebrand, so when this comes out, it might be known as Three Nerds of Podcast. We might be bringing on a third person with us. Um, but that's a show we do year-round. Um, we're in our season break right now because of the rebrand. We're going to get like a new theme song and stuff like that. Um, but it's a lot of fun. I just love talking to people, sharing the love of horror, documenting the human experience. I love having guests on my show. I've had some amazing guests on my show, like you, Roger. Um, among others. Um, still waiting for Troy to come on. We'll have to arrange that someday. Um, but yeah, that's pretty much everything that I'm doing currently. Of course, I directed a feature film in the past. It was a comedy film called Unlucky, um, but it has some horror elements in it as well. Um, and I'm, I gave Roger some links and stuff if people are interested in checking out all my stuff. I'm sure he'll put it in the description and all that good stuff. So... Oh, for sure. We're definitely, we're going to keep promoting you all through the week. It's it's Buddy Candela <laughs> Week at Dark Night of the Podcast. And uh, yeah, we'll definitely be sharing more information. And I really want to encourage our listeners to check out his podcast and check out his material because a lot of things, first of all, he covers great material and does it well. Um, I, I think you handle your dialogues and your discussion really well. It's very clean. You've obviously been doing this for a while, so it just makes for a great show, but also I really love your clip art. I think it's cute as all <laughs> hell, and you're adorable. As a gay man, I'm sure Aww. you understand where we're coming from, so to all of our gays, I highly encourage you to you check them out. Um, but right now, let's, let's get down to business <clears throat> to defeat the Huns and focus on yes. the movie of the week. 
which is before oh, we do this before we do boy. this roger i just have a quick something to say yes because you know all of our begging and pleading every at the end of every every episode for for our <laughs> listeners to go in and give us a a five star rating and review on on um, yeah. Apple Podcasts. We've been doing it since the show started. We got one. Oh we got God. one, Roger. We Literally got one. We got one new one. Weeping. A year of us begging. begging. And so we want to th- we want to thank Don Anelli for giving us that five star review on Apple Podcasts. Oh my God, yes. He's a great supporter of the show. So guys, if you want to hear your name. <laughs> If you want get off your lazy asses <laughs> and click the little five star and write a few words. It's that lucky, simple. That's simple. Lucky him that he gets to hear his name on our, our fancy podcast. <laughs> I'm sure he's thrilled. But seriously though, not only is he huge is he a huge um supporter of us, he's a, a huge supporter of all of everybody. horror themed yeah, podcasts. He really and I is. think he deserves an extra shout out. Every week he makes a digest of the latest updates from all the podcasts that he listens to. He makes sure to get them out there. I know we've procured followers through him and his amazing promotion. So, Don, thank you so much for your support. Also, another reason I want to raise Buddy up really quick is, Buddy, you have, um, on multiple occasions, I've acknowledged you really prove yourself to be an ally of the queer community. And you know, first and foremost, we are an LGBTQ plus themed podcast. And that covers horror movies. So I want to thank you also for that, even down to the, the simple details of including your pronouns and your bio and everything. I can tell you get it. I think this is going to be a good conversation, just a fun time to chat with you. And I really want our, our listeners, especially our queer listeners, to show you some love and support as you do to us. So thank I just want to throw that I, out there. I appreciate but that. Thank you. Let's get down. Yeah, yeah, for sure. We appreciate you. Um, but yeah, Silent Hill. You guys ready? Ready as ever. So don't feel... <laughs> <laughs> set set off a, the alarms, Troy. Does it ever be? Cue <laughs> alarm sound effect. Um, <laughs> but uh, Silent Hill. So as we said, it, it was a 2006 film inspired by the video game franchise, Silent Hill, uh, that was directed by Christopher Gans, who is a French filmmaker. Uh, he did the 2014 Beauty and the Beast, which was a mind fucking all of itself, and he had a shit ton of CGI. He also did... Um, a segment from Necromo- Necronomicon, the Book of the Dead, back in, like, the 90s. Uh, but overall, he's got, like, he doesn't have a ton of credits. A lot of them are very obscure, and a lot of them are very artsy. But it lends to this film. His style lends to this film, in my opinion. It's one that he championed to do. Um, yeah. I was doing some research on this. I guess he was, like, funding his own, like, mock scenes to send to the studios and stuff, trying to get... He was a super fan of the game's... Um, similar to the director of the first Resident Evil film, who was like really like gung ho about the games, trying to get these films made. Um, it was a similar situation with Silent Hill, and I do think that comes through in the film. Like this, if anything, the game. I mean, the film. See, I'm already getting them confused. The film <laughs> feels like Silent Hill. Like regardless if you like the film, dislike the film, it is Silent Hill. Like, there's no, like, debating, like, oh, like, they completely missed the mark with this adaptation. Like, it doesn't look, feel anything like the games. It, it is Silent Hill. <laughs> yeah, definitely. I think I think his style perfectly uh, lends itself to the, the world that is Silent Hill. And this is a world that in a lot of rights, I mean, I don't love a CGI-riddled film normally, but I can't imagine this world existing without it. And uh, because of his like kind of elaborate over the top style, it really um, seamlessly kind of blends reality and this fantasy world together. Because when when they're in the real world in this in this adaptation, when they're in the real world, it is 
very much the world we live in today. When they enter this alternate reality, there are multiple alternate universes of Silent Hill, they become progressively more and more CGI inspired. Um, and because of like the separation from reality to this like hellscape, it works for me. And it's rare I would say that. But um, uh, in, in regards to the cast, uh, we've got like, kind of an all-star cast. Uh, I normally wouldn't anticipate a video game like a video game inspired film grabbing such a uh, large amount of talent, such talented people. But we have some really like superb performers here. And a lot of them are kind of like giving us their A game, which again, I would not anticipate from a video game movie. Um, starring Rada Mitchell, whom I love. I like absolutely love. She's one of my favorites. She's my preferred Naomi Watts in a way. Uh, but she's got credits like Pitch Black. The alligator film um, Rogue, The Crazies remake, which I think is one of the best remakes of all time. So she really like delivers an outstanding performance as the female uh, lead Rose, who's basically on this mission to find her daughter. And her her maternal instincts just come through so strong in this character. Yeah, and you get Lori Holden, who plays uh, Sybil. From the while well, she's from The Walking Dead, that's obviously I think where most people are going to recognize her from. Uh, Andrea was she Andrea in The Walking Dead? Yeah, yeah. she's also in The Mist, though. And like, the Mist, that she was is in a The Mist. Yes, horror movie fans hold close yes. to their heart. She's also in that series, The Americans, which I secretly love. Um, we also, of course, we mentioned before Sean Bean has a presence in this movie. Sometimes I question why, but he is yeah, consistently throughout we're, we're this film. Gonna get the, yeah, yeah, that was my big thing. Yeah, it's like him and Kim Coates, who I love from Sons of Anarchy, who it took me a while to recognize. I'm like, oh my God, that's the dude from Sons of Anarchy. The, both of them, both the males in this film, like literally have nothing to do. It's a very female driven film. It was tacked on last minute. Yeah. Um, because... I guess that in the first draft of the script or whatever, there were no male characters except the father character was at the very beginning and the very end. And the studio was like, what's going on? We need like some sort of storyline here. So I feel like it was very, very last minute and it could have been almost entirely cut from the film. And that's where a lot of your runtime is coming from. That's what I was thinking. Every one of their scenes could have easily been cut and it would not have affected the film at all, at all. I mean, when if, when your film is pushing two hours, you need to really look at what is in there that's just filler. And I feel like every every scene with the father in it was filler. And there were some long scenes with him in it. There was the scene with him and the the, the uh, cop on the bridge talking about the wife for God knows how long that went on. Uh, so I feel like that that stuff could have been cut to help the runtime a little bit. But I mean, it is what it is. It's in there. I was going to say it's hard because you got Sean Bean doing it. And obviously you don't want to cut him. Like yeah. If you just had some random guy cast as the father, like you could have chopped this down like a half hour. Um, but if you like, I mean, at the time, because I'm not Lord of the Rings, all of them had come out at that point. Right. So he was probably the biggest name attached to it at the time, I'm sure. So, yeah. Yeah. Well, and like another thing about his character that it's unfortunate that they like gave him the task of exposition because he's automatically very boring, but he does bestow upon the audience so much like additional knowledge. There's not like ever a scene where it's like, they don't like spew a little fact about the background of silent Hill or give you information on Sharon, his daughter and like where she came from. It's just boring. It's just compared to Rose's story arc, which is just a constant onslaught of fear and 
horrifying imagery, he's unfortunately like the straight man in this. And it really does lend itself to like being just blase. He doesn't get to do anything fun. And that does suck for Sean Bean. Uh, there's a few other actors in this who I also want to mention just because it really is like a crazy stacked cast. Um, we've got uh, Jadel Furland, who plays the character of Sharon, as well as like the demonic form of Alyssa. And she is a child actress at this time, but like you look back and you forget just how many movies she was in like at this time frame because she was also in Twilight Eclipse. <sighs> Go fuck me. I can't stand Twilight, but she's in it. <laughs> She's in the tall man. <laughs> that is the best out of the Twilight yeah. films, though. The Eclipse is the best. Uh, agreed. <laughs> she was young Carrie in the 2002 made-for-TV movie Carrie. Um, she's in the movie They. She's a uh, patient Buck, uh, Bruckner in Cabin in the Woods. Like this kid did so much in like the 2000s, and you kind of forget just how present she was in the genre. So props to her and Deborah Kara Unger, who's in Crash, White Noise, and Thirteen, and Alice. Krieg, who was in Gretel and Hansel as that, like, fucking terrifying witch that's vomiting up braids. Like, she's great. So you've just got, like, this amazing cast that, like, has roots in the genre. Like, they know how to deliver a horror movie performance. And, like, one area this movie does not suffer, aside from maybe a few weird dubbing issues, I'll be honest, is acting. We get solid performances across the board. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, um, anyways, like, launching right off into the storyline, because we're already deep into Silent Hill, and, like, we have not even started, but, um, we really, like, open this movie on a strong note, because, A, we get a good taste of the score, which is very present all throughout the course of this movie, and is honestly, I would say, one of the standout elements of this film. The score, and, like, that mandolin music, especially when they focus on that sound from the game, it really, like, just sets the tone right off the bat. This is Silent Hill. We're sticking kind of right to the book with this or right to the game with this. We're really, like, staying true to the material. So you get a taste of that score before it launches into, like, this really intense opening with Rose basically screaming for her daughter, Sharon. In the middle of this rainstorm, she's running barefoot through the woods looking for her daughter. Yeah, the cinematography is pretty striking right off the bat. That's the first thing that really caught my attention. A lot of times I don't really pay attention to the score unless it's like heavily in your face. So I really didn't notice that. I just noticed I noticed the cinematography and like the set design was absolutely stunning in this opening scene. And that remains consistent through the film. I mean, if, if this film has anything going forward, in my opinion, uh, it's the set design uh, of basically everything not just the town of silent hill in the different dimensions but everything throughout the film looks consistently great uh it's very uh eye-catching very interesting to look at so right away you get this scene with the mother running through the woods and it's not just like any you know it's not just like some generic woods that you would see like in friday the 13th there's interesting things to look at there's train tracks there's a there's a bridge that, that's a train track bridge just overlooking a giant waterfall and where the little girl is standing right on the edge of this cliff overlooking the waterfall getting ready to what we think is she's going to jump into it because she's like in this trance so everything in this film is very heightened and very elaborate uh, and it's right from the opening scene i i was i was drawn in i was drawn in yeah, and especially in, like, these beginning scenes and stuff like that. Like, one thing I, like, want to mention that was sort of, like, a downfall of films during this period is this is when, like, horror films, like, the color palettes started really being, like, the really deep greens and blues. And, like, looking back at that, it's so dated, like, the Saw films and, like, things of that nature. But this one, like, they really let 
the colors do what they're supposed to do and it looks like beautiful and like in those opening scenes when she's running through the woods and the waterfall overlooking and then even when you get like the cg like going down into the flames and like all that kind of stuff like at least it is pleasant to the eye and not not dated like most films were <laughs> no it it doesn't look da- it does not look dated uh, there's some c yeah there's some cj elements of the film that look dated now but that this this isn't one of them and you know i mean you have to give the film you have to i think you really have to be a little bit forgiving if you're watching a film that was made in 2006 that's using cgi because as we know technology uh, and the, the capability of computer graphics just changes drastically within a year, let alone what almost twenty years. So you, I, I can overlook that. But I, I do like this opening scene right away. The little girl is laying on the ground. The mother gets her, tackles her down, and the little girl is screaming at the top of her lungs. About she keeps repeating "Silent Hill, Silent Hill." And apparently, we find out that this is a recurring thing with this little girl that she has a habit of sleepwalking uh, and waking up screaming Silent Hill. So the mother, Rose, wants to get to the bottom of why this little girl is so uh, incessantly having these sleepwalking trances where she is obviously drawn to this Silent Hill place. In the background of this sequence is this opening moment comes to a close uh you know as they're holding the daughter and and the husband's there sean bean and they're all just you know recovering from this traumatizing moment in the background uh you see what i take it to be kind of like one of those like mega churches there's this gigantic mm. oh gigantic cross. cross in the background yeah and, you know upon my like first few times viewing this i understood there was like a religious element it's very obvious but i didn't understand just how deep this movie gets with its religious tones and you know for being a video game inspired film i give it credit that like it really gets deep into you know challenging people's i would say almost challenging like certain belief systems extremism of religion the abuse of religion uh mistreatment because of religion and it really like taps deep into the the psyche of not only hell but purgatory like as you really start to like examine this movie and pull back the layers of the onion and you start to learn what silent hill is what it represents and what these different like realities are the existence of this purgatory state is uh, state of silent hill is is uh, very present throughout the course of the film. And it, it presents a lot of questions. And that's why I say, like, you got to go back and revisit this film to answer these questions for yourself. Because to this day, I don't know for sure certain things, but I really like that they took it there. Uh, and it all starts here with this first visual of this cross, because you do see these religious themes and these relig- pieces of religious imagery come up over and over, and there's a purpose for it. Um, really quickly, we transition right into a sequence of of Sharon drawing in a field and Rose walks up and you realize like pretty quickly that like Rose is grabbing the bull by the horns and uh, she's going to nip this in the bud right away. Like you get right to the fucking point. Rose is taking Sharon to Silent Hill. She doesn't care what her husband Christopher says. She's taking things into her own hands. And I like that too, right to the fucking point. Yeah. And then in that scene as well, um, speaking about the religious, not so much undertones, but overtones as they're leaving the tree in the field, we get another like billboard of like this scripture. Um, I can't remember. I can't recall exactly what it says, but again, it's right there in your face on um, the religious element to this. And yeah, she she's not screwing around. Uh, she's like 
don't we're not taking the kid to therapy we're not doing this this and that we are going to find this town silent hill and that they do and that they do uh they she packs her right up in the little her little jeep and whisks her away to silent hill and uh the yeah the the father actually figures out what's going on because he looks his wife and daughter are missing so he actually goes to his computer and looks at uh rose's search history and sees that she has been actually looking at websites about silent hill and through that we the audience find out that it is a ghost town now that is well known for the fact that it has like a constant fire burning under it, which I thought was really interesting because there's really a real uh, ghost town in Pennsylvania. I believe it's Pennsylvania. This is West Virginia. But if you look at it, there's a real ghost town in Pennsylvania where like this fire has been burning under it since like 1950. uh, So nobody can live there. Uh, So I wonder, I'm sure that's where they got the idea uh, to do that from. But the mother takes the daughter and right away, I have to say this daughter sort of annoys me a little bit. Uh, She's kind of whiny and I don't, maybe it was just me. I don't know. She kind of got on my nerves a little bit. Like I felt like this was a, like a 10 year old girl acting like she was three. Uh, So it kind of was a little grating at moments when she's like, mommy, mommy, the radio's too loud, mommy. I'm like, oh, Jesus, it's going to be the fucking Babadook all over again. (laughs) There's a lot of audio in this movie that, um, like dialogue specifically, that almost has a dubbed-esque quality to it. Um, You hear it from Rose, you hear a lot of it from Sybil, um, and you hear a lot of it from Sharon. And I, in some ways, I feel it, it. whatever caused this, it definitely takes away from moments of the performances because you can tell these actors are, like, they're doing their fucking job. But there's a kind of a certain flatness to the audio. I don't know if it's the way that the audio was leveled. But to counter that, the sound effects within this film are standout. And especially as you progress into Silent Hill and the different various realms of Silent Hill, you really hear just how pivotal sound is in this film so even though the acting uh and the dialogue does have like i said that weird kind of flatness at times it almost becomes secondary to the world around it so i can live with it um but yeah so uh, and this also really starts to establish right here at this point sean bean's like purpose in the film which you mentioned is very much inspired by harry from the original video game and this movie almost feels in some ways like a prequel to it elements of it even though it does take from the first and second game directly the story arc it's got this weird kind of sequel-esque vibe to what the actual story of silent hill the game silent hill is um and his journey though boring as i said it is extremely chock full of exposition and like right off the bat you're right troy like you're like getting information on what where silent hill is what it is what's going on so it's like boring but like it kind of serves a purpose well, I mean, hey, he got a he got a fucking paycheck for looking at a website. I mean, it's basically what he does in the movie. Uh, <laughs> the most hilarious website yeah. of all time, by the way. It's, yeah. it's it's very much two thousand five internet. What he's on right there. I, yeah, I was I was struggling to really find his purpose or figure out his purpose in that film throughout the whole thing. But again. You guys, I had no clue. You guys were enlightening me because I haven't played the game. I had no clue that in the video game, the protagonist is actually a male. Uh, so, yeah. Yes, it is, it's the father who's trying to find the daughter. And the game actually starts in this segment that we're talking about. 
So there's no research scene, there's no daughter by the waterfall and all that kind of stuff. It just starts and this guy is barreling down the road with his daughter into Silent Hill. Oh wow, Hill. okay. You don't know why, you don't know what's going on, and then you're just kind of there. So this is where the game really starts. They added all of that additional stuff at the beginning. Well, I'm glad they did. It gave us some a little bit more exposition. I do like the scene, the scene coming up where the mother, Rose, stops at this like roadside diner and it's a it's an all-encompassing there's everything the oh town. my god you can there's you see a sign for like body piercings <laughs> in the window there's a restaurant you can get gas there yeah free breakfast <laughs> tattooing body art a post office auto repair a, a, a dentist <laughs> yeah. i mean it's everything um and i i do have to say regarding rose's character though she was created for the film i think they did a really great job of creating a character that still transitions seamlessly into this world even down to her wardrobe like she looks like she'd come right from the game it's the high the high leather boots like the color palette they used for her she feels like you said earlier buddy this movie it, it feels like silent hill and everyone within it feels of that world so they did a really good job of creating a character that though they maybe gender swapped it a bit it still feels like a very natural choice um, but you do really also quickly with this scene that we're talking about as they arrive at this diner, tattoo parlor, gas station, <laughs> de- <laughs> post office, um, you also like are given a very, by this point, giving a very clear idea that Rose is a loving mother. Like they give you, a, even though they only give you a little bit of exposition before we start getting the ball rolling in Silent Hill. Um, I have no doubt that this is a woman that like is going to do anything for her kid. And a lot of that's in part due to the great performance from Rada Mitchum, but also just like they handle it really well and just giving you just enough of the storyline beforehand to invest you in what's about to happen. Which is interesting to me that this mother is so uh, protective and so just like into her child. I don't mean that. No, I mean, obviously any mother is going to do that. But in this case, it struck me as being a very interesting kind of uh, plot device because we do find out in the scene that actually Sharon is adopted. It's not even her real daughter. Uh, because when Rose goes in to pay for gas at, at the, this place, uh, the husband has apparently like stopped all the credit cards. So she can't, her, her card is declined. So she calls him on the phone and she's like, Hey, why'd you, you know, put a hold on the credit cards. And he's like, you need to bring Sharon back right away. And she has this piece of dialogue where she's like, I'm taking her to silent Hill, you know, silence Hills in West Virginia. And when we adopted her, it said she was born in West Virginia. So you're, it's, it's not even her real daughter. So it's interesting to see this like motherly connection to, uh, this adopted child because, let's be honest generally in horror films when there's an adopted child it's like an evil like little heathen like an orphan or uh just name any movie with an adopted child and it's usually the child is is evil and and out to kill the parents and in this case it's sort of flipped you know the mother is these two have a strong connection there's obviously a lot of love there the mother's putting herself in very obvious danger to protect her adopted child. And on the flip side, the adopted child loves the mother. There's no like evil intent there. So it is kind of a, a, a little uh, twist on the adopted child in a horror film trope that you usually see. In film in general. I mean, yeah. you go back to like Cinderella and like all the, all these films where it's like all the, the stepsisters are bad and all this kind of yeah, stuff. I yeah. mean, it's just very, it's ahead of its time, I guess. Yeah. I mean, I don't know. Poor adopted yeah. children get well, a bad rap. You learn that, you know, it's this this bond is important. 
like as the story goes on you learn there's a purpose to everything here and this you know they i think they really focus on this relationship between mother and stepdaughter um because as, as you get further and deeper in the movie this is all kind of meant to happen um sharon's purpose within not only in the real world but within this film and in everything going on is you know she's meant to lure somebody to silent hill and the only way that's going to happen is i think you know through a mother's love i think this is all planned uh, as we start to learn um but right now you know you already got rose in a position where she's picking up on things and she's learning things and we're very lucky to have the token uh horror movie trope of a child that draws their feelings because this child is like full-on illustrating like everything that rose needs to know about silent hill like here's the past of silent hill here's where you need to go in silent hill the key locations you need to visit like this child has given her a full tutorial on what she's get about to get into so um it's a it's a cliche trope <laughs> that we've seen in so many movies before but it is prominently used in this film and it is it does tie in again to the vibe of the games and all the clues that they would find in the games right yeah yeah, this is also when we get introduced to Officer Sybil, uh, played by... Last week, Troy, Ugh. we had a lesbian we did not like, and this week, we have a lesbian that I love. <laughs> okay, and I... Don't even get me started, because oh, this is, again, the fifth fucking film in a row where there's a character that I love that gets done fucking dirty. I'm about tired of it, Roger. I'm about tired of it. Yeah, I was I so pissed when this scene with her at the end. I was so mad. I was so mad understandable but that's because i mean what this movie does well is it gives you characters that even though they may not have like the most meat to them every single character i i actually like like and care about a lot of the characters in this film and so i mean that's that right there is a sign of good filmmaking yeah if i care about sybil bennett enough that i don't want to see her die then they're doing something right and i also love her wardrobe i love i love her short crop lesbian blonde haircut even though i normally hate short hair on a, on a woman, on a female lead, which is so horrible of me to say. <laughs> but um, I love everything about it, and I, I love how she's played in this film, and I think she's a strong character, and all jokes aside, um, yeah, it's a, it's a bummer that she's a character that's done dirty. Yeah. So the officer, Officer Sybil, comes up to the car and knocks on the window, and little, uh, what's her name, Sharon, who I can't get, I, it's, it's hard for me to call a little girl Sharon. I don't Such know. a bad name. It is a bad it, name. It's, it's, it's a grandma name. but It's a grandma name. Her original name and her name in the game is Cheryl. So that might even be worse. Sure. As a well, grandma that's name. even worse. Yeah. I just kept thinking of like my grandma's best friend that she's, she used to go to bingo with when the mother screaming, Sharon, Sharon. Yeah, I think, well, I mean, neither of those names are necessarily. Effective. Could they have to change it to something like Joan? <laughs> Jola, <laughs> like no, I don't know. Like, all these games suck. I'm not helping here. <laughs> Stephanie, I don't know. Yeah, Linda. Um, so there is this whole moment where um, Rose is basically she's informed her cards are turned off. She's paranoid. She sees a cop in a sensible leather ensemble who seems intimidating, and she's like, "I got to get the fuck out of here and get to Silent Hill before shit hits the fan." Um, but just as she like leaves and thinks she's gotten away. Sybil fucking Bennett shows up on her goddamn motorcycle and she is just after Rose. And uh, you get some really beautiful aerial shots here that just add to the environment and the vibe. There's so much like scope to these shots. They shoot this whole sequence so well. But what was she pulling her over for? I couldn't figure that out. 
Like you, well, you're not allowed think, just to pull anybody over. Yeah, but you have to keep in mind already. I think there's a report out already because um. Um, he's ended the cards. You, I mean, like I'm, I think that the like wheels are already in motion with this. Then there comes the fact that once she pulls up, she hears the little girl screaming, which is actually her screaming about the artwork she's drawing. She's like, "Who drew this? Who did this? I hate this." And I think that initially Sybil is just responding on instinct because she tells that story about the child that she saved in Silent Hill that had been abducted a couple years prior. You know how that's brought up later? I think this is more just showing Sybil's instincts. Well, I don't care, but you're, not, you're just not allowed to pull anybody over. So when she, when, when Rose floored it to get away from her, I'm like, yeah, you go because she's pulling you over for no goddamn reason at all. You get the hell out of there. Uh, so she does Ro, Ro, or Sybil, puts on her little motorcycle siren and chases her down and Rose actually stops and, and, and lets her walk up to the car before she's like, put your seatbelt on sweetie and floors it. Yeah. We've had a lot of, um, final, you know, final girls or female leads in the last few movies that have not been up to par that have not satisfied me. And I will, I will say that Rose De Silva, she comes out swinging. Like, you know, she doesn't make a single, decision that doesn't seem to have thought or intention behind it like her main goal is saving her child and she pretty much is doing whatever it takes but she's in survival mode and i'm pretty impressed by her as a character especially as things progress the only thing better is if she would have been in a pineapple dress for the entire film don't bring that into my world right now troy we're already about to go into fucking silent hill hellscape i don't need pineapple dresses and sorority house massacre mentioned during this podcast it's um, embedded in my brain though it's singed into my mind it'll never go away but what's about to happen here is really like i would say my first big conversation piece of the movie because there's a lot of things about this film that i think are open to interpretation and what happens here is one of them, in my opinion. So there's this great chase sequence that happens that results in Sharon seeing a figure moving across the street, which is straight from the video game. Uh, and she swerves to miss it. And she basically like crashes her car and smashes her head against the windshield. And when she wakes up, she's in this alternate universe, this alternate ash-filled reality of Silent Hill. And it's a quick transition. And my question is, you know, for you, buddy, as someone playing the game, for you, Troy, as someone who's never played the game and is just going off of one interpretation of the film, I think there's a lot of ways you could dissect what just happens here. And you can kind of walk away with your own idea. Uh, you could go with the idea that they, you know, are basically transported into this alternate reality of Silent Hill because physically they're no longer in the vehicles when the vehicles are found later. Or I guess, like, my main question is, do you think that right off the bat, these characters die and are basically wake up in purgatory, the purgatory state of Silent Hill? Uh, I mean, I, I don't know if at this moment I felt that. Because again, I was I'm new to the whole Silent Hill world, so I'm just watching the film and going along with what's what's happening. It wasn't really until the end of the film, and we'll get there obviously, that I thought, oh, okay, they die. They pulled like a dead end, or a uh, how many freaking movies have we seen where there's been people that have died in the film, and what we're watching is just them basically transitioning to the afterlife. That's my conclusion in terms of the film as a whole now 
at this moment though i really wasn't thinking that i i because i didn't really know much about the the like i said i didn't know about the game or the film so i'm just going along with it and um but yeah it's it's interesting i think that's one of the big questions of the film is what in the hell really happened right like when you are first transported there there's definitely like the oh is this a purgatory thing is this town just like some sort of alternate dimension like some sort of twilight zone kind of thing is there like some sort of like black hole when you go over this bridge that you're not supposed to go to into this town that's full of ash like when you're watching it for the first time um it leaves you with all these questions and you're not really sure what you're supposed to be thinking about and this film does a good job of not answering a lot of your questions until the end and just kind of letting the atmosphere take hold yeah and that's i think where the replayability factor of this movie does come back into play because yes it's long-winded and yes it really takes its time but it also leaves you like with a shit ton of questions like by the end of your first viewing of this movie you don't know exactly what just happened but you're starting to suspect things like troy like you just said at the end of it you had like an oh aha moment so then you go back and you rewatch it again to see like is that actually what it is is this is that the case there's little details that the sequence gives you that i really like like when rose wakes up after the car accident she has like they really focus on a, a wound on her head and then when you see sybil a little later they take a moment to actually acknowledge that sybil also has head trauma that she's bleeding from her head and when you see a shot of her motorcycle having crashed crashed into a, a guardrail they really focus on the fact that it was like a violent like it went onto its side you see the tire track you see where it slammed into the guardrail like i think in a way they're trying to give you a little bit of the information that these characters may have actually died in my interpretation these characters died upon impact and that's what got them into the alternate realm of silent hill and now that they're there there's a purpose for them being there yeah, I think that's very logical. I mean, I think that's a based on what we are handed throughout the movie. I think that that's pretty much like hits the nail on the head in terms of my interpretation of the film as well. That they all die. That there was some crash between uh, Rose and uh, Sharon and uh, Sybil. They crashed. They they died. And Silent Hill is like you said, their purgatory or their their hell, because obviously it's a pretty uh, brutal disturbing a place to be stuck even as a purgatory so to me it was more like a hell uh, i wouldn't even call that a purgatory uh but i love the imagery here i love this the the snowy the ash the ash snow throughout the this whole scene is very uh, just beautiful to look at the town now this is where you do get that muted color it's very gray and she ventures into the town because when she wakes up sharon is not nowhere to be found so she ventures into the town to look for her missing daughter now, which sets the whole film into motion. Yeah, you get some really, you get some real amazing cinematography during the introduction to the environment. Like they show you the massive Silent Hill sign straight out of the video game. Um, the, the incorporation of the ash in, in the game, it was like fog and snow. And they did make some creative, like they took some creative liberties in how they translated that visual to the screen for the film but i think they made the right choices especially like the burning mines underneath the town that wasn't part of the game correct buddy that i'm pretty sure so for the most like in the game similar to the film there's like the alternate like dimensions in silent hill in the film we have the real world 
we have like the ash filled like purgatory and then we have the hell the fire all that kind of stuff so in the game it's similar to that so you still have the purgatory ash fog and then you also have when they delve into the next dimension into the hell area of it where everything's on fire and then you'll wake up and you're in the same spot and everything is back to the ash um so it doesn't sort of in the similar in similar ways in the film except they add that extra layer where you have the husband walking around in the weird world um as well yeah they do a really good job of separating that there are like three alternate realities there is like where we are now there is this purgatory state that is basically silent hill's personal purgatory these individuals who still reside within silent hill as we're introduced to them we find out that this purgatory is preserved for a reason um and every once in a while this hellscape like bleeds through and that really makes for one of the strongest elements of the film because we're about to get to this moment that happens that really like when these moments kick off this is what elevates the movie to being i think one of the better horror films at least in the sense of visuals and and intensity and just like unique scare factor it's not like anything else at the time these moments are what elevate the movie in my opinion and make it a standout it doesn't always gel but when it does it's these moments and I, i'm really excited to talk about these because as rose is basically chasing who she thinks is sharon or at least this mysterious sharon like figure through the very effective streets of Silent Hill, um, she's eventually like lured to the most ominous stairwell I've ever seen. Which already she like stops. She's like, I'm not going down that. And then as she's like, she's like, Sharon, <laughs> come out. And then as she's like, kind of like looming in the stairwell, we get this sound cue of what has become, I would say, the like definitive trait, definitive standout sound effect associated with this this series both video game and film uh it's this really prominent storm siren that is unique to the game that like when it goes off it is chilling i think it's one of the best aspects of the movie oh for sure yeah oh yeah it's very distinct very noticeable it's definitely ominous so when you hear the siren you are very much uh, uh, tuned into something bad is going to happen Obviously, it's a warning siren, so it plays a, it kind of plays up that symbolism in the movie. So when it goes off, you are very much made aware that something is going to happen. And boy, does something happen in this scene because we really get introduced to the first set of what would you even call them? Villains, creatures, um... hell spawn. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. I, they are. She goes into the building and basically runs into a whole pack of these like burning charred children they're demon ash babies yeah <laughs> they, they're they're they something yeah. well there's this whole great sequence of her like this moment is so stand out to me because it's not like they just like she turns the corner and they're there like you've got her walking through this very like dark and throughout this darkened environment with nothing but like the light of her lighter and she's like bumping into shit and making all this noise and she has no idea what's going on whatsoever um the entire world around her has like morphed and mutated and changed and has taken on this like absolutely hellish 
it just the whole environment has just become like this hellscape. It's 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 very distinct and very noticeable, and and she has no idea what's going on. And they through the cinematography and these great aerial shots that they do, these swooping angles, very inspired by the video game, they create this feeling of like disorientation and fear that uh, builds up to this like swelling moment where she turns a corner and she finds like the the body of a man hung up on a like a metal chain fence. And he's like still breathing, so he's still alive, but he's completely disemboweled. <laughs> like, like his guts are like hanging out, and he's still like, <sighs> and as she's like, you know, gagging and reacting as you would finding a man whose organs are hanging out of his body, you see this like drawn out shot of like these legs waddling up behind her. And like, I don't care how if the CGI is aged poorly or not, this sequence is. <laughs> horrifying to me like it is just this swarm of these things and they take their time and it builds and it it swells into this moment where she turns around and she is just bombarded by this army of mini demon like sparking ash babies <laughs> <laughs> yeah and they attack her they grab her and and are pulling on her and she's screaming and all of a sudden i don't know maybe i didn't catch it but they something causes them to evaporate i don't know is it her screaming and struggling or did something well, did i miss something later in the film you see that hell comes through i mean on a regular basis first of all if i was trapped in this purgatory i would just be like take me now i don't want to keep living in fear of, of at any moment hell could start bleeding through into my reality but you do see like at one point this happens and everybody is within like a church and they start doing a prayer and the darkness is lifted. So in my mind, it's not anything she's doing because she's like running from these things and they're overwhelming her. Like they're about to get her and all of a sudden they disintegrate. Now, what I take away from it is the individuals within the church by this point have, you know, cast the spell and the darkness is lifted until it comes through again within the next 15 minutes but uh you know what i mean i think it's it's not based off of her and what she's doing it's elsewhere people know how to handle that makes sense that her. makes sense yeah and then i guess drawing parallel to the game this is exactly what happens into the game um except all the little demon hell spawn have knives but Ooh. i in the film because obviously in the game like they need a way to like fight you or whatever but in the movie it wouldn't make any sense at all for them to be holding knives so that's a good change that they made there and then i i believe in the game you just kind of pass out and then you wake up and you're in the ash world again so at least this one it shows them like dissolving and like okay what is act there's more of a mystery element to it in this one in the game there's a lot of instances where your character just passes out and you wake up in one of the other dimensions so at least in this one they do a better job of getting them to meld together and phasing them in and out. Yeah, and I, I do want to also acknowledge during this whole sequence, this, like, massive aerial sweeping sequence as she's making her way through this, like, chain-link fence setting, um, there is, like, really awesome metallic sound effect. It's, like, this clanking metal. Hell is very associated with, like, almost like a factory-like environment at certain points throughout this film, and they really start in, in um, like, integrating that audio into these moments as of this sequence and it is again chilling the usage of audio and it, throughout this film is really impressive and helps really like oomph up the environment when it does make that transition um when she does wake up she finds herself in a bowling alley as you do after passing up and um she goes like she opens the door and there's a moment where she like looks in the back like the backyard of this area and it's set up like it's a wooden fence that is set up the exact same way 
as this chain link fence environment she was just in. And one thing I like about the transition from Silent Hill to Purgatory to Hell is it all has the same kind of layout, but every single time it evolves, it becomes like more and more horrifying <laughs> down to like the textures and like what it's made out of. Like hell, the hell version of Silent Hill is pretty fucking terrifying. Yeah, but can we acknowledge that when she wakes up, she's listening to Ring of Fire by Johnny Cash? <laughs> Which I playing on the good old jukebox. <laughs> yeah, which I thought was kind of a funny little touch based on what had just happened to her. And that is the only song that is not an original remix of an original song. That's the only thing in the soundtrack that was not part of the franchise before that, but now you can never forget it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it was a nice little touch. She runs out, she uh, realizes the road is basically gone. The the road ends and it's it's not there. It's gone. It's, it drops off into God knows where. Uh, and there's this weird vagrant lady she runs into. Yes. Um, this woman is Grizabella from the musical Cats. If you've ever seen geez. Cats, like I, gay men you'll, who are listening, you'll understand. So she is, <laughs> she's Grizabella from Cats, a.k.a. Crazy Dahlia Gillespie, a.k.a. Deborah Kara Unger. Uh, and she's instantly fucking crazy. Like right off the bat, she's like screaming about her child that that rose has claimed her child and she establishes like right off the bat that um her daughter Alyssa and sharon share a lot in common yeah because uh, uh rose shows her a picture of sharon is like i'm looking for my daughter and she immediately starts screaming that's my daughter that's my daughter <laughs> well they are they're ident- like they literally are identical so the yeah. confusion makes sense uh <laughs> dahlia's uh approach to this situation doesn't help anything she definitely gives crazy vibes like well first of all down to her wardrobe like who goes wandering the streets in shredded clothing with mascara flowing down your face like looking batshit crazy like i wouldn't trust her either um but like the whole thing where they find like not only is like the road it's like not just a dead end it like dives into a pit of darkness and this is what like sets the tone for okay we're not in kansas anymore Clearly, this is an alternate reality, like, and we can't get out. So it really does play into more of the idea of, like, are, are these characters dead? Are they trapped in a hellscape? Where the fuck are they? Um, because as we learned, this is all around the town, too. There is no way out of Silent Hill. Yeah, it's like they're floating. There's yeah. No matter which direction you look, there's nothing but the void. We do get a scene of the husband looking for her, but let's just breeze right over that because it's pointless rose go back rose goes back to her car and calls her husband to tell her tell him that um what's going on doesn't get an answer and the cop comes what's her name cop sybil 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 the most sybil, lesbian sybil, sybil. name ever sybil yeah, <laughs> sybil she comes and, and arrests uh, arrests her for actually fleeing the the scene yeah sybil's pissed but uh, reasonably so, because she, like, doesn't really have a grasp on what's going on either. But, like, the car is dead. When Rose tries to make this phone call, like, she can make the call, but it comes through only as, like, static and white noise Which, on his end. You learn this in, like, a few scenes later. And I like, like, all the hints that, like, this plays off a lot of ideas of, like, when you think of, like, hearing ghosts through static. And, like, all it plays off all of these, like, kind of real life tropes that we, like, have adopted for our society of the presence of dead ones among us because later on he thinks he's sensing her and everything so rose like consistently can kind of 
connect with her husband, Christopher, even though they're they're in the same place, they're just not in the same realm. But she does, like, bleed through every once in a while. And that's sort of what makes you question, like, are they in purgatory or is this another dimension? Because if you had to guess, okay, are they are they dead? Are they gone? Like, how is she able to tap into our world and leave a message on his answering machine? Yeah, you can't understand it, but how is that even possible? So, it no matter what your stance is, you're always questioning what's going on when it makes these parallels in the film. Absolutely. Yeah. 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 Uh, the co- uh, Sybil, cop Sybil, off- Officer Sybil, I'll, I'll call her Officer Sybil. Officer Sybil. <laughs> she leads Rose through town and they fi- they come to the other end of the town where the road is basically not there. So yeah, you, what we learn all around them, there's, they're basically on an island. This town has become an island. There's no way off of it or out of it. And this is when we see this, like, cre- this is probably one of the, the scariest things for me in the film was this creature, this, like, wobbling um, sperm cell looking thing <laughs> that doesn't that doesn't have arms. And it's just <laughs> coming out of the fucking junkyard. I was like, what the fuck is that? And it's just this disgusting thing. It's such a good sequence. The way they, they build up to it, they give you these really, like, just again the term disjointed uh but like really like off disjointed camera angles um like skewed angles that really like make it feel very like distorted and animalistic the way this thing like approaches them like even when you see it's like legs first before you see it close up you just see these like legs like coming at them and it's got like tar dripping off of it and they this scene is just shot really well one curious aspect about it though is it takes place within the i'm just gonna say purgatory reality because like if you're going to differentiate them there's the purgatory reality there's the hell reality that's how we'll acknowledge the two so they're within the purgatory reality when this happens yet there are still demonic creatures that apparently can remain within this realm which is kind of disconnected with the rest of the creatures who seem to disappear when the hellscape dissolves away you know when hell Mm -hmm. bleeds through it brings all of the forces of like evil with with it you know all these demonic creatures go come through with it but then as it kind of gets prayed away uh and dissolves away the creatures tend to dissolve away as well so we do see these creatures that apparently are like immune to that it is not explored further it's a curious decision to make um but i mean it does leave me like curious as to like how many other creatures can remain within both realities yeah and uh, this creature uh, it it has the ability to like shoot lava or or something like lava or ashes at people because it shoots what what appears to me to be like lava at the uh, officer Mm -hmm. sybil gets all over so she immediately has to pull her jacket off and throw it on the ground because it's it's burning her you can see it smoking off of her uh, she shoots this thing uh, in the meantime Rose takes this opportunity to basically escape from Officer Sybil so she takes off running runs through the town finds an old school mid what was it called Midmouth or something Midmouth school this giant enormous looking school building that she runs into and uh, starts to ex- explore as you would and we do get a scene of the officer that her husband Chris has basically run into to help find his wife. And there is a scene now where they're basically driving through Silent Hill, but it's actually normal. It's just a normal looking ghost town. There's nothing um, 
nothing about it that's supernatural supernatural there but and it's abandoned nobody's around so i guess that does lead you to the question like if if you know all three of these characters rose uh sharon and sybil are dead they they got they died in a car crash or they're some somehow wouldn't the these two characters know this wouldn't the, the bodies would have been found they they'd be basically there on the side of the road there'd be a crash that people would notice yet these two are exploring the town and in, for them though it's 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 in it's reality it's as we are now it's there's nothing supernatural about it they do state that they found the vehicles yeah and they and were the empty motorcycle. they were empty nobody had yeah. bodies they're not there yeah and they make the really i do like one thing to differentiate these worlds and to show like how in some ways how little impact they have on each other is in our like reality, the world of Silent Hill, there's like a deluge. It's a downpour. It is raining the entire time Sean Bean is in Silent Hill. And it looks miserable. I would never want to be on set for this. They seem so just wet and unhappy and soaked through to the bone. But it really like it does kind of establish the difference between one world to the next because the mist world is always just mist and that's all it is so you know in reality you have this just soaking wet abandoned dreary environment which transitions then to this like even drearier grayscale environment where rose and sybil currently are um so yeah so rose uses a trope from the games that i really like where she basically she knows she has to get to the school as per a piece of illustration she found at one point and she uses this whole shtick of using street like maps on the streets. They have like these basically like signs like you are here, you are here. This is another thing that's straight from the game. And this whole sequence leading up to the school and getting into the school is one of the sequences that feels the most inspired by the game directly. Right, yeah, it follows it pretty much step by step. And of course, during her quest, when she is running away from Sybil, she's still handcuffed during this. So then she has to put her arms through her legs, get through the handcuffs, and make her way into the school. Yeah, and Rose is just, she's resourceful. Like, they, you know, yeah, they have her do this whole thing where she, like, pulls her legs through, you know, wraps her arms through her legs and, like, pulls up her handcuffs, so at least her hands are in front of her. Um, and she manages to get to the school. She gets into the school and, and um, uses a series of, of, again, events from the video game to kind of like find tools and things that are going to come in handy. Like she finds a set of keys. She uses the keys to open a drawer. Inside of the drawer is a flashlight. It's the exact same flashlight you see in the game. They do a really great job of having consistently like having little nods to the, the source material. Uh, but so she finds this flashlight and she starts like wandering the school environment, which is terrifying. Like it's one of the more effective abandoned schools because we've seen a lot of them. Like guys, let's be real. This is a common... If you see one abandoned school, you've seen all of them. But this one is exceptionally terrifying. And she's chasing Sharon, Alyssa, whoever, through the school. And, like, you know, going after going through a series of turns, she comes upon the figure of a man in a mining uniform with, like, the flashlight on his forehead holding the, the little cage with a bird in it, which is, like, a token trick of the trade for miners back when they wanted to detect if like you know there was gas within the cave or whatever the birds would inform them that it that it was poisonous um and these guys even though they're not monsters they also make for a very like unsettling appearance um and they're used very well throughout the course of the film to cre give just yet one more 
element of fear and one more villain that she has to contend with. Even though they're not monsters, these guys are pretty fucking effective. Yeah, and something else, like, I guess, when you're watching other films like this and people are, like, in an abandoned school or whatever, like, normally it's, like, a group of teenagers or, like, you're with your friends. Like, she is by herself in this alternate realm in this abandoned school with these guys covered in ash and staring at her and all this stuff and of course there's all these other things that are about to happen in a minute um but it just shows her like relentlessness trying to get to her daughter um especially all on her own um not even waiting and helping Sybil dispatch of the lava monster guy she's in there by herself yeah, they give you, they do give you a lot of imagery too within the school. This is the first time you're really starting to see like the imagery of uh, like a lot of cult-like religious imagery. There's uh, posters on the walls of like living your life with God. And it's very specific the way it's illustrated. It feels very culty. There's an emblem of like a very like ornate cross on all of the windows. It's this purple cross and it comes prominently into play. Um, and she, as she's making her way through the school, she also comes upon a desk where a pair of, like, strategically placed handprints reveal the word witch. Like, the dust has been wiped away, and you can see in the wood the word, uh, the wood, you can see in the wood the word witch <laughs> has been carved. And she opens it and reveals, like, a perfectly timed flashback, giving us some history on who Alyssa actually is. Apparently a witch, or so we're told. Well, yeah, this, uh, the people thought she, her classmates and stuff thought she was a witch, uh, basically because she didn't have a dad. Uh, and her mother got pregnant by God knows who. So, of course, that's a big no-no when we're talking about religion. So, yeah, she finds this desk. So we do get the introduction to Alyssa Gillespie. And she runs into this bathroom. And here is, like, this little girl crying in a stall. But when she opens the stall, this is when we get this guy, this body that's, like, tied with barbed wire, like, in the, in the stall. Just disgusting looking this whole sequence is a nightmare fuel <laughs> like this oh and then this the, well the siren the siren starts yeah. to go uh off again at this moment and then the the helmet guys show up and try to get at her and are like pounding on the door and she is like you know rubbing her necklace saying save me save me and it's pretty it's it's pretty uh fast-paced pretty disturbing yeah it it it, it the build-up to this whole moment is in, at times gut-wrenching because she goes through these stalls she thinks she's chasing her daughter like she's hearing the cries of a girl's voice it sounds like sharon then when she opens this stall she's surprised to find a man's corpse bound by barbed wire in a very <laughs> distorted and like fucked up position where his arms are like crucified out and his legs are like bound behind his head it's it's wild it's gross and written above him because he's like above a toilet so like written in shit i'm assuming above the toilet is like dare you dare you double dog dare you and it has an arrow pointing down to like his head and you can see in his mouth there's like something in there so this bitch like rose has bigger balls than any of us <laughs> like she like full-on goes into the stall and puts her hand in this dead man's mouth and like pulls out a piece of like a little piece of, of woodwork from a hotel and this kind of sets off the series of events because then the guys start, they find her in the room. They start pounding to get in. She uses the key she found to lock the door. She starts praying. Here's more of those religious, you're right, over, overtones at this point because it is pretty blatant and it's used all throughout. And the bird starts chirping. 
and I love the usage of like the of the coal miner's bird to detect when the presence of hell is going to come through. Because the moment the bird starts chirping, these guys drop all their shit and they are out of there. They're out of there. They're like, fuck this. And what happens with this sequence, though? Like, this is, again, yep. one of the standout <laughs> moments of the movie, I think. Yeah, it's uh, the paint. The paint and stuff starts peeling off of the walls, like melting off the walls to transform the the setting into the more like hell-like uh, Silent Hill uh, setting. And this creature, which I'm assuming it looks, I think it's the guy that was in the bathroom stall, right? Because it's all contorted and wrapped in barbed wire, comes like crawling out of the of the bathroom, like on all fours, all distorted, growling at her. And it's pretty scary it's insane he's like yeah. flicking his tongue at her he's like oh, la, 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 la. and like that even <laughs> that like you learn later in the film like not to jump ahead but like you learn that this guy specifically is like they allude to he's someone who kind of like sexually abused alessa rape. you, you, he, he raped, raped her, her. Yeah. you see it in these flashbacks mm-hmm. yeah he was so like the, the school janitor or something yeah right and so you see like him like flickering his tongue at rose and it like knowing what you know after viewing the movie over a few times it makes it all the more like disgusting and unsettling why he's doing what he's doing and the the guy who played that character is also various other creatures in the film he was a he was a choreographer actually he choreographed many films and he's a contortionist as well so that's actually him all strapped up behind and all that kind of stuff he plays pyramid head in this film as well and nowadays, I mean, they could have done the guy full CG, like, whatever. So it's just, like, cool to, like, see that, like, they actually had a guy doing that. Yeah, yeah. They use a lot of CG throughout the sequence, but I also appreciate the fact that, like, they didn't... They tried to cut as few corners as possible. Like, yeah, this was made in 2006, but they're doing some... Some of these sequences are just wild. And, like I said, couldn't really be done without the aspect of CGI. Like, it's very dependent on it. And because of that... It, but they still do try to use a lot of practical effects as possible, and I appreciate that. And you see that in the scene because, yeah, it's definitely not a CGI creature. This is, this guy is an actor, as you said. Here you are, buddy, spewing facts and information. That's why we have you. You're hired. <laughs> but um, this whole scene, like, and once this starts, the whole time you're in this hell realm, as of this point moving forward, it's fucking batshit crazy. Yeah, it is, because this is the scene after that creature is kind of, like, out of the picture. All these giant, like, these giant, like, what are they? They're They're like beetles beetles or cockroaches or bugs. They're about the size of a football. I mean, they're huge. They just start coming out of the doorway. And there's not just, like, one or two of them. There's, like, hundreds. It's a swarm. It's a swarm. I mean, they're just, it's a big glob of them just coming out of this room and they're all running towards Rose, and all of a sudden you see this like big guy come out of the doorway too, and it's Pyramid Head, surrounded by his army of bugs. It, 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 everything that happens here is is again, like I said, it's it's nightmare fuel. It's they they really did a good job of taking like the the wildest limits of what hell could be, and just like going fucking crazy with it. Because first of all, like when when the demon with the barbed wire puts his hand on the wall, it starts to, like, develop this vein-like structure. And that alone looks pretty fucking disgusting. Like, that visual alone, I would have been like, this is enough. You can leave it here, and I'm already sold. But then the vein-like structures start opening, like, pustules. And from the pustules come these fucking 
beetle demons and the beetle demons they're like they're like the the egyptian beetles what are those things called the scarabs they're like scarabs but they got faces as you see at one point and there are millions of them and so rose is running and she's flipping her shit as you do and she turns the corner and she sees like the miner men like the like the the coal miners who she were earlier trying to you know bust through the door and get her she sees them like being eaten alive like they're swarmed covered in these things and their flesh is just being eaten from their bone so at that point like fuck me already like what do you do then so yeah then she takes off running and even goes further and pyramid head just comes out of fucking nowhere who pyramid head is a character from the the uh silent hill 2 but i would say this is his best form like it's his most effective form the cinematic uh version because he like he just looks like unlike any other big baddie I can think of. He is, he is definitely his own thing. He has his own aesthetic. I find him unusually sexy, as I said earlier. And I, he's got like his bare ass revealed. His body's all like lean and muscular. He's got this big ass butter knife that he uses to just do his shit. And he's got this big old pyramid head. And I don't know if like there's a real head underneath this pyramid head or if his head is actually this metallic pyramid either way he's he's up to no good and he's certainly looking to get rose uh and yeah and, and at one point she just drops to the ground like crying into the flashlight as its batteries are dying and i'm like i would be in the same boat rose like take me now like i'm not gonna fight any longer if this is the reality i have to live in with this fucker coming after me at random when i least expect it i would just give up but officer, yeah, officer Sybil saves her though. Comes out of nowhere, grabs her, pulls her into a room. They shut themselves in the, in this like little boiler room, and this is when he Pyramid Head is on the other side of the door, shoves his like fucking fifty foot long butter knife. <laughs> this is the, <laughs> good thing the room is fifty one feet right. This barely, fucking <laughs> butter knife. This knife is like huge. Where do you find a knife this big? Hell. <laughs> you hell. Hell, only people from hell have these now but like and he's cutting through this this steel door like it's like literally butter it's like paper and he's cut he's swinging it through these women are screaming they have no idea what's going on those beetles are coming through <laughs> you see you see a few of the beetles in close-up and i have to say like out of all the cgi the beetles have like held up the least because they have like little faces and like at one point what one yeah. of them screams at Sybil. It's like, and she like steps on it. Um, and like, I, I mean, it's like ew, but it's also like that's very fake. But like that's one of the few moments that really doesn't still sell it for me. Um, but of course, like just in the nick of time, as like Sybil is unloading her gun and firing into this this pyramid head's arm and doing nothing, you know, because he's still coming for them. The hellscape starts to dissipate, and it you know, and goes away as it does. It goes away. She shoots him in the arm. It causes everything to go back to normal. Uh, and this is when Rose, who has taken this broken plastic part of like a hotel key, with because you can see like half the room number on it, she's like, "Well, I have to go to this hotel because that's where uh, Sharon's going to be." So they had now they head to this hotel, and you get introduced to again. Is it Anna? Anna and Dahlia. This bitch. She's throwing. Ro- oh she's God. throwing rocks at poor Dahlia. It's like whapping her in the head with rocks, saying, "Shut up, you old hag!" <laughs> throwing rocks at her, and you're a we're a witch. Anna gives a really good introduction to the people of Silent Hill. She's in it only for like a minute, 
She Thank really God. doesn't serve a ton of purpose. She's super obnoxious and she's very like simple. She's she like her the few words that come out of her mouth, she kind of sounds just dumb. Like she's a very simple-minded, brainwashed cult member. She fits the mold perfectly. But she's like, I mean, she basically is there to spew some more exposition and introduce the name of Christabella, which is a character that comes into play. But she kind of gives you some backstory on the cult, what the cult's about. And you get the idea that they're kind of trapped in this Silent Hill purgatory, protected by their faith, their extreme religious faith. Um... And so they're in this hotel, and they basically go on this journey with now with Anna. They have a group of three girls, which is kind of cool. I like that it's a female-based group uh, where they're exploring the rooms of this hotel. Yeah, they're trying to find... Well, they go to the hotel desk, and in one of the slots, uh, the male slots for room 111, is a picture. It's basically one of Sharon's paintings. And uh, Rose recognized it right away. So they're like, okay, we have to go to room 111. So they head up to room 111, but they don't, they get to the hallway, but there's no room 111, but there is like this, what is it? It's a, it's a painting. It's a religious painting of something. Is it like the Virgin Mary or something? Well, it's a religious, it's a painting of a witch being burned at the stake. Oh, um, same thing. And it very much coincides with a piece of art that Sharon had drawn previously. Yeah. uh, Which is how like, which is how Rose knows to identify it. But the whole like burning at the stake comes into play multiple times. Like it, it goes beyond just the specific painting. You find out there's way more to witches being burned at stakes than just this one moment. Because Rose, who very, a very smart call, chose to steal a knife from Crazy Anna because I would never let a cult member have a knife around me. Uh, she takes this knife and she cuts her way through this painting and reveals. A hidden door the room that they've been looking for and sean bean has been sleuthing this whole time let's let's be clear and there is a moment i want to go back and see there's a moment where sean bean is like looking for rose in this smoke riddled reality because it is still oozing smoke from the burning uh the coal fires beneath it and he's wearing like the mask like you know like one of those like the m95s like one of the heavy duty yeah ones, and yeah. it was like ooh, this like hits in a different way now like i know it's just they didn't intend it, but now just seeing the visual of it made it feel... No, I thought the same thing because there's this, there's the part where he takes the mask off and the cop's like, put your mask back on! <laughs> and I'm like, oh God, this is like very 2021. Getting yelled at for not wearing a mask. Very, yeah, very much so. And that's also the moment where he, like we mentioned before, he senses Sharon's presence and that does happen a few times. And there is this moment where she runs by in the hell escape reality and he feels her presence and he says it he's like she was here i feel her i know she's here but like it's just the gas uh but little do they know there are alternate realities at play but so sleuthing 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 he's uh at this point he's even breaking into places and stealing files he's been getting down and dirty while meanwhile rose has been exploring this hotel and it all kind of leads her to this like dilapidated area of the hotel that is very like quite an ornate set yeah, he's been padding the running time. Uh, she <laughs> goes, she finds, she hears the little girl crying, and she, yeah, she goes into this elaborate, like, it's supposed to be a hotel room, but this fucking thing looks like it's like a department store. Uh, it's huge, and it's, it's the, the floor's caved in, there's like these, 
contraptions you have to walk across like you're balancing on a on a balance beam to get from one end to the other the whole room is in disarray she hears a little girl crying and she actually manages to get down to where this little girl is and it is a spitting image of Sharon. Sharon. but the little girl it, it's it's Alyssa, right it is dark and dark Alyssa. The, the the little demonic because so like there's the three versions there's the the Sharon version, the burnt Alessa, and then there's like the demon, like setting my arms in horrible CG flame, Alyssa. <laughs> and not just setting them ablaze, but announcing it. Like, look at me, I'm burning. Because um, she literally says it. <laughs> that was pretty cringy, yeah. actually. The whole the line delivery and the CG. Yeah. yeah, she's like, I'm burning. But mm. Alyssa, they, so Sharon is Cheryl in the game. But Alyssa is still Alyssa. Correct. In the game, yeah. Correct. Yeah. So yeah, cool. Because I know you've been playing the game. I'm using you as a crutch. I'm falling back on you here, buddy. Because my I gotta freshen up on the game rules. It's been a hot minute since I played it. But um, we and we do see her a few times. Like at one point when Rose is running through the school, she even like there's a sequence where she sees who she thinks is Sharon scribbling on a desk but then it does like one of those rotations from like the 2000s very matrix where it's like whoosh 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 and it like rotates around the desk and she like looks up and she's you know dark Alyssa. um so this is now the second time she sees her so she at least knows to like confront her as a different person she's no longer suspecting that it's sharon she knows that there might be somebody else so when she sees dark Alyssa, um well dark Alyssa, like we said she sets herself on fire Yeah. (laughs) yeah I mean, it's a quite the introduction to Dark Alicia. Well, she disappears after she sets herself on fire. The siren goes off again. And now we are, birds are flying everywhere. The siren is going. So we know something is coming. And they run out of the building and they head towards this church, right? And all of these, like all of a sudden, now all these other townspeople that we haven't seen are running towards the church. And they all go inside. And... We get Pyramid Head stomping <laughs> with his giant butter knife. And he, as they're going in, he actually gets a hold of Anna, right? It's Anna. Yeah, poor Anna. Yeah. Well, what I like in this sequence is that Anna, so a few, everybody's running into the church. It's made pretty clear here because Anna's like, we've got, I mean, she says it. She's like, we got to get to the church. So you learn that the church is like this safe haven for the the populace of Silent Hill that seem to be trapped in this purgatory world so they're all running through the cemetery up the staircase to the church sybil bennett is in awe of what she's seeing um and they uh they all hang back because dolly is on the steps and she's basically saying like your blind faith is going to be your like final downfall like she's spitting out warnings and foreboding and as she's trying to warn rose of, of, you know, she's trying to tell Rose exactly what's going on with these people. She gets hit by a rock. And it's goddamn, it's fucking judgmental Anna <laughs> with her bitchy face. This girl, she just looks so, she <laughs> looks like she looks like she's in the midst of a shit at all times. She's so hostile. She's stoning poor Dahlia. And I like that it's because of her, like, hesitating to throw stones at somebody that, like, Pyramid Head <laughs> just manifests behind her and like grabs her and he's like fuck you and he like rips her dress off and she's butt cheek naked just hanging there screaming and then he grabs her tits and he rips her skin off it's a very violent kill 
I was crying. <laughs> like, I was watching when I was watching, because I had heard about this scene in great detail for years before I had ever watched the film. And when it happened, I was screaming. In a good way? Like, I was just like, this is one of the most ridiculous things I've ever seen. Grabs her, twists her skin completely off, and throws it at the church window in a big blood splatter. Oh, yeah. It, like, sprays everybody. It's so graphic. And I love, like, when you see him grab her nude breast, yeah, you see, like, him dig his fingers in and start rotating it, and you just see the skin, like, starting to pull. It is so graphic. And some of the CGI is, like, a little bonkers, but for the most part, like, though it's over the top, this scene holds up. It's quick. It's quick. You don't really get a... It's... It's graphic, but it's not as graphic as it could be. I mean, it never sh- it never shows her at the aftermath of like her body, her skinless body. It's basically he rips the skin off in a in a clump and throws it at the church doors. The other got people are running inside. This is when we once they once they're inside, everyone starts accusing Rose and uh, Sybil of being witches, and these people all look fucking. They miserable. are miserable. Well, look who their leader, look who they're following, this Christabella bitch. Yeah, and she is not any better. Um, Because, like, when you think of cult-like mentalities, like, they really just, like, I don't want to say they phoned it in. This is, like, this is the cultiest of all cults. Like, they're in a church, they have an emblem, they have a special prayer, they pray away the demon. And, like, everything that Christabella spews out of her mouth is just hateful and seems like it's such, like, brainwashing material. And they latch right onto their leader. And then when you see the people in the town, like, they're all, like, in, basically in, like, rags and all that stuff. And, of course, Christabella, she's got, like, that fancy, like, gown that she's wearing. And she's talking up all on her high horse. And, of course, everyone's just eating up everything she's saying. And, yeah, it's just the classic cult-like mentality taken to the absolute extreme in this. Because they literally cannot get out. Yeah. And for this being a church, it's also filled with, like, so much imagery of just, like, brutality and violence there's like so much to do with like people being burned at stakes and like there's illustrations on the floor and everything that just look like it just is it is not a pleasant place to be um but somehow it keeps them safe somehow and this is one other thing like in the sense of conversation pieces about this film these i I find the usage of their blind faith to be such an interesting piece of the puzzle because we're really starting to get into the religious tones of the movie. And once they get in the church, they find out that it really is like a safe zone. It does prevent the darkness from coming through. And they have to do this prayer that they all, they all gather around the central piece of the church. And they do a prayer and it causes the darkness to lift. And you even see like the light come through the windows for a moment and everything. Um, and it's, it's interesting to me because like, it's aware of the, the, this whole world within Silent Hill, it's, they're aware that this this blind faith has a certain amount of power. So it's not saying that like religious belief isn't effective, but at the end, it's it's leaning towards the idea that it is kind of just a band aid. Like like it really, it's nowhere near as powerful as the dark forces that exist. Am I making sense? Like it really, it it only protects them for the time being. But I don't think, like, it, to me, it seems that, like, heaven, if this, if heaven exists within this universe, they don't want you. 
because of what you did. As we as the viewers learn, what you, the people of Silent Hill, did to this girl. So you're stuck in your own purgatory, but your faith does at least allow you to stay safe from the darkness should you remain in the safe zone. It's interesting, it's kind of convoluted, but um, I don't know, I, I find it to be one of the more interesting aspects of this movie, how heavily they play into the religious elements. Yeah, if there was like a true... If the, if the church in this was really helping them, protecting them, they would have been out. So, like you said, it's sort of protecting them for the time being, because Pyramid Head and the Hell is always going to come back, but it's not like they're escaping Silent Hill. They are trapped there. Um, and then even the cult leader, like, she... At first, when they come in, I remember her being, like, open to them, like, being there, and it's like, oh, this is great. Like, yeah, of course we're going to help you find your daughter, this, this, and that. And then she sees the picture, and then that's when... That's when the the flip of the switch where she's like, all right, stone the witches. <laughs> yeah, because basically Christabel or uh, Rose and uh, Sybil meet Christabella and Rose explains that she's looking for her daughter. And Christabella is like, well, the demon is the one who knows where your daughter is. And he's in this like hidden room, like way down in the, ba- the, the basement of this hotel or whatever. This is a church that's like the hospital. What? Yeah, it's like the floors. It, it goes it's it's the hospital it's like room. the gas station it's everything just all in one you... it's everything <laughs> yes, it's, yes. but the, he's in some room like b151 she makes her memorize the map so that she knows and she uh, christabella agrees to take her and sybil to the room and she's like very blunt about it she's she's like you know what you guys i don't plan on seeing you again because nobody who has ever gone down there has ever come back up but I'm, you know, I'm, I'm more than happy to let you help you or help you find your, your daughter. And it is uh, the, the necklace, the locket that uh, Rose has wore. She dropped it and Christabella had picked it up. And as they're getting ready to descend down the elevator, uh, Christabella hands the locket back to her, but sees the picture. And it's the picture of um, Sharon. Sharon. And she's like, witch, witch. <laughs> And that's when all hell breaks loose. This is when you really get to know that Christavella is a villainous, horrible person who is capable of almost as worse as any of these villains that are lurking Silent Hill. Well, and she's a full manipulation over the people of her church. Oh, she's, yeah, they'd have her do yeah, anything. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Rose, uh, Sybil does make sure that Rose gets into the elevator and actually she's like, go find her and shuts the elevator and put and lets her go down. And in the meantime, those helmet guys start to like beat the shit out of Sybil. Oh yeah. Sybil like makes herself to be, I mean, in some ways the standout hero of the film with this sequence, like she, at this point, having gathered the full story of Rose's purpose there and seeing everything that happened, she's, she literally sacrifices herself for Rose to continue with her journey. Um, and when earlier you mentioned like Sybil getting done dirty, there's this whole moment where she like raises her gun to fire it at Christabella and like, God, you want to see her shoot the bitch because by this point, Christabella has really established just what a person she is. And Christabella like reacts like she's going to get shot. And the moment the gun doesn't go off, her minions just step in with these metal pipes and they beat the fucking shit out of Sybil Bennett, powerful lesbian police officer. As meanwhile, Rose is on like 
that elevator ride from Disney World, like oh, the Tower of Terror, where she's just fall, she's free falling, it's just pitch black. The, the most horrifying. This poor woman has been through so much. I mean, like <laughs> she had no idea what she was getting into with this, but um, she keeps on trucking and she goes right down into basically what is the depth of hell for her daughter. Oh, yeah, and this is when she's introduced to as she's walking through these hallways trying to get to this this specific room. She runs into this horde of zombie nurses, busty sexualized demon nurses. (laughs) They can't, but their faces are like wrapped in like gauze. You can't even see their faces. But they're wearing traditional like yeah, they're wearing traditional nurse uniforms with big boobs. And they're w- moving all awkwardly, and they're like in a, they're like almost like it's a group of them, but they're almost like synced to like when they move, they move together. It's a very effective scene. And she, oh, it is. It's, it's, it's pretty, yeah, it is. These, these things are pretty creepy. And she realizes that when she, if she shuts the flashlight off, that they freeze, they must res- they respond to the light of the flashlight. So she shuts the flashlight off and she proceeds to, make her way through them as they're frozen and they're like they're like as she's walking by um and she does something she like bumps one of them and it goes ballistic and like slashes the throat of another one and they just start killing each other they're not the smartest villains but (laughs) no they're they're visually the most stimulating um (laughs) at least for i guess straight men god i mean if you look into the fanboys of the silent hill franchise they fucking love these broads these busty nurses with their mutant faces which i would think the mute the mutated morphed face would be like a deal breaker but some of these guys seem to like it um and in the game series when it was a male protagonist i know there was like an underlying sexual tone for these what these characters represented um, and it, you obviously you lose the purpose of that now having a female lead. These characters are literally just in this because they are like fanfare fodder. Like the fans of the games know the visual of these nurses, but they don't really serve the same purpose they did within the video game. They're just in it for this moment. They're fucking cool to look at. They're unusually sexy and have high heels and short skirts. And then they kill them. Like, they literally just slaughter each other. It's a weird sequence, but I love it. Oh, I did too. I thought it was really cool. Yeah, because they're all, I mean, they're basically completely blind because of their disfigurement. And then they're covered with the the bandages over their eyes anyway. So they're just, like, slashing at whatever. And instead of getting who they're supposed to, they end up just taking themselves yeah, completely slitting out. each other's throats. Rose gets in. She finally makes it into the room. And now we get this... Oh, I don't know. It's a voiceover that's just a bunch of exposition in the voice of Alyssa. And we get the whole backstory about what happened to her. That she was picked on by the other kids for being fatherless. One one day when she was being picked on, she runs into the bathroom to kind of get get away from the kids. And this, the creepy janitor is in there. And it's very much insinuated that he rapes her. The mother, her mother finds her. Um, and basically Christabella and her groupies have want to like atone the sins of this little girl, which what is her sin? She got raped and she doesn't know who her father is. So they lure her mother and her to like this gathering at this hotel under the guise of something else. And the, the group takes Alyssa away from her mother 
shoes her mother off just as her mother kind of realizes what's going to happen. There's a scene where her mother's like, oh my God, what did I do? But she doesn't try to do anything. She just leaves. And then there's a brutal scene of them burning this child alive on like a grill. She's literally on this giant grill being... How do they get it there? It's huge. And she's... It's, I'm, we're, folks, it's a grill. It's a grill. It's like one of those cheap like grill you see put charcoal on the bottom of the girl is laying but gigantic. yes the lay the girl's laying on the rack of this grill just screaming her fucking head off being burned alive uh something happens though i don't doesn't really not very clear but something happens where the grill gets tipped over and all of the charcoal and fire falls onto the floor and falls into like the grates of the hotel. And we're assuming that's what starts this everlasting fire. And in the meantime, a cop comes and carries basically Alyssa's burned body. She's just, bur- there's no skin left on her. She's just like this burnt thing but carries her out of the, the hospital or out of this room. And she's still alive. It's the same. The cop is now the detective. That's yeah, assisting. yeah. That's assisting Sean Bean, who is meanwhile Sean Bean has like been to an orphanage. He's hanging out with nuns. He's getting backstory. He's serving angsty bitterness and betrayal with his wife, but he's finding out information as we go along. So like he's got a story, but honestly, like the meat of this is rose's story so like that's neither here nor there to be honest if you want to really get sean bean's story watch the movie but yeah they they screw up the ritual basically so the when the ritual goes wrong the the basically that's what sets the town on fire because it knocks over the coals and the whole thing it sets the whole place ablaze um and because of that ritual not going the way it was supposed to go because obviously this was just a normal little girl who had some fucked up shit happen to her and, I mean, just like, I mean, you hear this all the time with, like, the Salem witch trials, like, all this stuff. Just, like, a bunch of crazy religious people claiming people to be witches who are either different or they don't understand them and all this crazy stuff actually manifests what they were trying to dispose of in the beginning. This dark Alyssa, this demonic presence is actually manifested because they screwed up their own ritual trying to quote-unquote cleanse or purify this witch well and one thing like you know there's like lots of things about this film that i think are meant to be open to interpretation one of them first of all did dahlia know what was actually going to happen and then last minute regret it or did she think that they were doing one kind of ceremony and then oh she finds out later that they're going to cook her child alive like I, i almost got the vibe that she knew that she was sacrificing her kid because her sister as you find out christabella is dahlia's sister and whoever their mother was did not know how to name children. Um, but you find out they're sisters, and she's basically convinced to go through with this. But it, they're not clear about whether or not Dahlia knew exactly what was going to happen. Regardless, one thing to acknowledge at this point, Dahlia seems to be one of the only individuals who is not affected by the hellscape. Like, when the hellscape comes into Silent Hill when Pyramid Head bleeds over. There have been several moments now where Dolly has actually been present, and it does not come for her. It doesn't kill her or affect her. So whatever happened within this decision she made, whether it be that she repented what she did or felt guilt or what have you, it doesn't seem like the dark forces are after her. But what we do learn is that the dark forces are looking to claim the souls of these people who 
basically tried to sacrifice Alyssa. And it plays again into the idea that are all the people within Silent Hill, within this purgatory, are they dead? Are these people that died within that fire and now their souls are trapped in this alternate reality of Silent Hill? And because of their blind faith, they're at least keeping themselves in this purgatory. But it's really hell that wants them because what they did was so vile. But they are convinced that what they did was, you know, honestly for a greater good. So because of that blind faith, they've managed to keep themselves, quote unquote, safe until that point. Oh, yeah, there's a lot of interpretations. And that's, yeah, uh, that's the thing about this film is lots of pieces to put together. And it does require multiple viewings, you know, despite how long it is, if you can get through it, you know, more than one time probably a good thing because you do pick up on things that you certainly don't the first time you watch it uh in this point in the movie the group some of the group members or the cult members or whatever you want to call them get they capture sharon and they take her down to the main level with all the other group members where christabel is at and at this point they have civil sybil tied to a ladder and christabel has ordered her to be burned alive as a witch so they basically start this huge pit of fire ablaze and slowly lower the ladder with Sybil tied to it into the flame. And it is, I was so mad. So mad. It is a it is a brutal death though. Like, oh God, it shows her cooking. It shows her like just, ugh. I was like, why are you doing this character like this? Like this is the strongest character like ever. Oh, yeah. And you are going to do her like that? I was like mad. Yeah, yeah, but she was an epic character, at least with an epic death. We've seen some characters in reviews prior to this where, like, you know, you've had a character that you like, and they're just, like, thrown to the wayside, like a, a knife through the gut, and they're done. At least she, like, I mean, this woman gets quite a finale, and it is gruesome, and it is painful, but, like, it is one of the standout moments of the film, I would say, from a cinematic angle. Um, while this is happening... And while these sacrifices are happening, I, I do want to acknowledge that there has been this moment where Sharon has actually face-to-face -face now spoken with the dark Alyssa, who very clearly makes a statement that she's like, I have many names. I am known, you know, as, as in many forms, basically implying that to me, dark Alyssa is the devil. Like, I mean, not, to, I, I'm not... They don't say it outright that she's the devil, but she basically says, I have many names and I basically want these souls that are owed to me. Um, so she calls herself the Reaper. I mean, she says she's the Reaper. So we've got this now really prominent demonic presence that's come into play that also adds like a whole other layer to this. Um, and it does make me curious, and I want to know what you guys think. This whole thing of witchcraft has been building up and building up at this point with Sharon slash Alyssa. And what we're told and what she represents. Do you guys think that Alyssa was actually a witch and really did possess some of this dark power that they're so scared of? And it's because that they acted on it and, and you know, unrightfully, you know, burned this girl alive. That is that what gave her the ability to make this connection with this demonic force to allow this what's about to happen to occur? Or do you think that she, you know, witchcraft is not even playing a factor into this, that it really is just because she's so hateful after what's been done to her that it allowed this demon force to kind of come through and execute what it is she wanted to do? 
I don't think that she was a witch before. And I think it's like, it was just the rage, I believe. Because even then she's, when like you see her in the hospital bed and she's all burnt up. I mean, she kills the nurse or whatever. And then, um, basically the dark Alessa is all the evil manifest. And then Sharon is basically the little girl who we saw. She's the good natured everything. And this demon is basically, at least in my interpretation, what the people in the church created when they were, what they thought that she was. She manifested who they were picturing in their minds as this evil witch, this terrible person, this little girl who needs to be burned alive. They created what they sought to destroy. Yeah, they, they thought that they were doing an act of like, ho like a holy act in the sacrifice. But they instead manifested this evil and like let this evil into this this world, into this alternate world, and it's it's because of them that it's it's there to begin with within Silent Hill, and it wants what it's rightfully owed, which is the souls of all the people that did this. So it creates like honestly, like we said, you know, the religious overtones have been consistent. It builds up to this very, for being a video game inspired film, a very deep insightful finale um it gets wild it's a, shit's about to get wild but i mean there is a lot to unpack here there's a lot to unpack and analyze and it is worth reviewing uh revisiting this film a few times to really i think figure out what it means to you how you interpret the material uh because it can go a lot of different ways yeah yeah, and we can just yeah. What what ends up happening is they now have Sharon tied to the ladder, and they're going to do the same thing about her, to, to her. Christabel is ordering that Sharon be burned as a witch. Rose shows up and is basically she's done. She's she's had enough of their shit. She is cussing them out she's confronting them about their faith has brought nothing but death some of the townspeople even like step forward and like slap her and there's one guy that punches her to the ground and she still gets up and heads right over to Chris Christabella and is like you are a fraud you know you're doing nothing good for God God doesn't even you know know you exist and uh, Christabella takes out a knife and stabs Rose right through the heart and you, you, you think she's dead, as you would, but we see like the blood from the knife drip onto the floor of the church and just spread out, and it kind of changes the environment again, and uh, opening the floor, and now we get like the body of the burnt Alyssa like on this bed surrounded by all this like barbed wire and, and, and razor wire surrounding her kind of elevates from the floor. And from then all hell breaks loose. Rose is alive. Barbed wires flying everywhere. Um, killing everybody. <laughs> it's wackadoo. I mean, this, this final sequence is insane. It's a lot. It's a lot of CGI. It's a lot of murder. Um, right prior to this point at the conclusion of the sequence between, sh between, um, between Rose and Dark Alyssa, there's literally a moment where Dark Alyssa hugs Rose and it's absorbed into her. And so you're giving the idea that like Rose has been given a task. There's a purpose for all of this. I do find it really cool that at this point, Rose has been through so much. She's been so injured that her dress, which was like gray and she had like a, a gray uh, top and a darker gray skirt is now red. Like she's literally 
dressed all in red because of all the blood and everything that she's just like encountered along the way. Um, but it, it also is kind of symbolic, I think, in some ways, because she's got this dark... She, she comes into this church with this darkness inside of her. They're not aware of it. But the darkness, I think, knows that they're going to try to fucking sacrifice her. And the moment that she gets stabbed and that blood starts coming out, like, she's... Their actions and their violence towards these people have literally let hell into their safe space. Their acts of evil have allowed these demonic forces to come in. And once it's in, they can't get it out no matter what. And it it does its thing. Yeah, it's what the, it's what the dark forces wanted all along. Like, the dark Alyssa was using her as a shell in order to infiltrate the church where normally the prayers and everything would keep them out but since the force was inside of her when she was stabbed it was finally able to let loose into their safe space which is what the intent of it was oh yeah it's wild the the, the barbed wire basically rips uh christabella in half i mean it, it goes up through her vagina and everything and it's like comes out of her all her eyeballs uh, comes out of her whole body and then just rips her in half you couldn't ask that to happen to a better person uh and it basically just kills all the town people so it gives it rose and sharon the chance to escape they get into the car the town's now back to normal silent hill they on the way they're they're calling home and we do get a transition into Chris. The father is at home laying on the couch and he hears the phone ring at the same time that Rose is calling and she leaves a message on the answering machine. But all that's coming through is static as we as the same thing happened in the in the earlier part of the film when she tried to make a call. They get home. They open the door and Chris is laying on the couch. They see him. But then he's startled awake because he must feel their presence. And he gets up and they are nowhere there. But the front door is open and the film basically ends. Yeah, I can't really think of a better way to end the film. Like, No, it's very open. I, I love the fact that it's very open-ended. You are really left to determine. And I think it really boils down to one of the two choices that you said at the beginning. Either these characters really died at the beginning and everything that we kind of watched throughout the film was them transitioning into the afterlife or they are literally stuck in purgatory yeah and and, or an alternate world an alternate universe that they're never going to be able to escape and there's one point where like right before basically she and dark Alyssa make their pact to work together where sharon says she's she said why did you pick me and Dark Alyssa basically just says right to her, she's like, because you're the one that cared. You asked the right questions. You followed through with it. Um, she even says to that uh, to Rose, their blind conviction denies me from their church and I cannot enter, but you can. And so it, it's basically established that the whole Sharon storyline, which you do get a lot of this with Sean Bean and the orphanage and everything leading up to this, which we've kind of almost not touched on because it is so groaning at times. It just goes on and on. But you 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 get the idea that Sharon was planted in our reality with the purpose of bringing somebody to Silent Hill to enact this mission. And Sharon is the good kind elements of Alyssa so that the parental figure would love this child enough to pursue 
all of this and bring her back to Silent Hill to get the ball rolling on making this happen, which I think is a very deep and at times convoluted storyline, but a really good one at its core. They purposely planted this child to find a loving parent who would go to the ends of the earth to try to figure out why their child is so tortured that they come back to this location only to be like kind of dragged into this hellscape to help the forces of hell come through and punish these people. Rose is literally just a, a tool, a pawn for this greater purpose. And it's very sad when you think of it. And she feels justified, I think, that she's gotten, she's saved her daughter. But you see this moment towards the end when she, when she grabs Sharon in the midst of all of this violence going on, all these people getting ripped up and torn apart by barbed wire and killed by, uh, by Alyssa in her floating bed. You see that, sh that Sharon kind of has taken on this new persona. Almost like, it's like, you know, you see all three of them have kind of melded together to become one. Uh, and you even see it when Dark Alyssa walks up to her and, like, looks down. And, and they basically seem to absorb into each other, you know? So um, it's a very interesting note because Sharon, the Sharon that she leaves with is not the same Sharon she had to begin with. No, it's a more fully realized version of, of the little girl, which is what she should have had all along. You know, the little girl throughout the film or through the beginning of the film, you know, craved or had a connection to Silent Hill for a reason. And it was for her own benefit as well to go there and to experience this because it really made her, you know, gave her part of her life that she has been missing so she's kind of become whole because of the experience but again the ending of the film is very open to interpretation i feel like yeah you definitely need to give it a few views and come to your own conclusion instead of having like someone try to tell you what they think it means if that makes any sense i feel like this is one of the move one one of the movies a type of movie that you want to bring your own you know, background and your own viewpoints to it and, and come to your own conclusion instead of hearing someone tell you, oh, well, this is what it means, because it's very possible that that's not what it means. I think it, it, it's our own experiences in life in terms of religion and just how what we've experienced based on that is going to let you come to your own conclusion. And I think that there's not really a right or wrong answer when it comes to this film. Right. And for a video game translation or for a, a cinematic translation of a video game uh, franchise, I mean, the fact that we can even say that about this, that it can provoke that kind of thought is really, I think, impressive. Um, buddy, I know you, as you said at the beginning, you've been visiting or not revisiting, I'm sorry, but exploring the, the video game uh, series of Silent Hill. And now knowing the games and this being a first time viewing the film, how did it sit with you wrapping it up and, and you know coming to a conclusion with the full story? What are your thoughts on it? So I you sort of touched on it. I mean, like the the fact that a video game movie is like bringing up all of these different interpretations and it can be viewed in all these different kind of ways is sort of like remarkable. Um, and what makes the film good for being like probably one of the best video game adaptations of all time is that it manages to take what little source material it has and really like run with it. Um, the ending of the game is extremely different than the ending we get in the film. In the game, the the two the daughters, basically the the dark one and the Cheryl character, Sharon and this, they do come together at the end of the game, but it basically turns into a giant monster. You fight the monster and then the game's done. It's not bringing part all of these issues like are they actually dead? What dimension are we in? Is Are they ghosts? Like, it's not bringing up any of these 
philosophical questions that's going to leave you with. And although the film does leave you with a lot of questions about what actually is going on, it does try to wrap it up and at least make sense in terms of the film. Because, I mean, we sort of brushed over this, but towards the end of the film, we are getting, like, tons and tons of exposition dumps. So at least as an audience, you're able to sort of piece together what's going on. Whatever that adds up to is up to your own interpretation, but it's not like it's leaving you with all these plot points that don't make a whole lot of sense. Right. And with multiple viewings, I think you, you just, like we said a few times here, the more you view this, the more you can kind of piece the puzzle pieces together to form a, a, a stronger image of what the exact message of this film is. And, and Troy, you're right. This is a, me- uh, a storyline that I think is meant to be interpreted by the viewer. I don't think there's a set in stone storyline. Um, I think you can take it a lot of different ways, which I think is actually a sign of quality craftsmanship for this film to have that much depth to it. Troy, like just in wrapping this up, for you being someone who does not know anything of the game franchise at all, and as a first-time viewer of the film, what is your takeaway for you? I'm curious to hear, for someone who's never played the game, did this sit as a, with you as a strong piece of cinema? Yeah, absolutely. The first, the, fir- the first viewing, it could have been just my mind frame. It seemed to drag quite a bit for some reason. And again, it could have been the day I was having or something when I tried to watch it. Like I said, I was like, oh my God, this movie feels like it's going on forever because there are some pointless scenes in it, especially the scene with the father. Uh, however, I did watch it a couple more times to, you know, I always try to watch the film more than once. And upon the second and third viewing, it really didn't feel as long. Uh, and there were definitely things that I picked up on that I didn't pick up upon the first viewing that made it a lot more interesting and gave it certainly a lot more layers to it. It's a visually stunning film, it competently made, pretty well acted. And again, I mean, the horror elements of the film are, are really effective. I can get why some people may not be a fan of the film, because like I said, it, there are elements of it that, that drag, and a lot of people may not be fans of the kind of ambiguous elements of the film. However, I mean, as a piece of filmmaking, as a piece of horror cinema, I think it's pretty effective, and it kind of does its job. I'm curious. I'd be curious to, to check out the video game now and kind of check compare out the video it. game. But whatever you do, Troy, do not ever check out the sequel, which is one of the worst films I've ever seen in my life. And I say that as a fan of this movie, I just act as it's a standalone movie. It doesn't have a sequel, in my opinion. The sequel is a whole lot of flaming bullshit, and I never want to see it again. But uh, yeah, I mean, overall, in conclusion, <laughs> that is our review of the 2006 uh, cinematic adaptation of the video game Silent Hill. And Buddy, thank you so much for being here with us through this journey. I'm so happy that this is the film that you picked because you brought a ton of awesome knowledge of the game and of the production on the film as well. So that was really cool to have. And I would expect I'd expect nothing less from you being a fan of the genre. Of course. Thank you. Thank you guys for having me on. It's always always good talking to you, Roger. Troy, it's been nice getting to know you a little bit through this and hopefully... Um, someday I can get you on my show. Yeah, absolutely. This will be the first of many. Hopefully uh, we can uh, start doing some stuff. So Yeah, and really quick before we let you go, one more time for the for the listeners, uh, pump up your podcast, give them your, your, all your social media, let them know where they can find you and check out your material. So the main place right now is you can find all my social media is just at Buddy Candela, my Instagram, Twitter, all that kind of stuff. If you just search Buddy Candela on YouTube, that's going to give you access to all of the shows that I do. It all ends up on there. 
Of course, Buddy's House of Horror you can find on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, whatever podcast streaming service you guys listen to, as well as YouTube. Um, we'll call some people out if they're not leaving five-star reviews for both of our shows after this one. Yes. Um, <laughs> and yeah, that's the main place to, to find me. Um, of course, I have links to all my stuff on my Twitter, Instagram, all that good stuff, so you can find all the shows on whatever platform you consume content, so... Yeah, and guys, seriously, like I I had a great interview with him a couple years back, but before that, I did a little deep dive on his material and I'm just I want to encourage our listeners to check out Buddy's House of Horrors. It's chock full of information. It's not just reviews, it's actually like educated fanboy information. It's the kind of material we crave as fans of the genre, and it's absolutely worth it. Um and in regards to our next episode, I'm just gonna put it out there right now because I know our fans are going to like lose their shit for several reasons. But we are finally going to have uh, our next guest um, is one of the members of the Death Drop Gorgeous family. We've been wanting to get some of them on our show because we love this film. It is a queer, queer, queer horror film, LGBTQ, and proud of it. And it is just getting so much love and attention right now, as it rightfully deserves. So we're having the first of the crew on our show, and it is the studly, handsome Mike Joseph. He's such a stud muffin, but he's also a sweetheart, and he knows so much about the horror genre, and I let him also pick his movie because of that. I mean, they just made this kick-ass film, so I thought it only made sense to let him let us get into his mind of what kind of films um, he would want to dissect as a fan of the genre. I let him pick the movie, and he picked, honestly, one of my favorites, Troy. He picked the 2009 indie classic, iconic classic, in my opinion, House of the Devil. I love this movie. I love it so much. It's by Ty West. It stars the stunning Jocelyn Donahue, uh, Tom Noonan, and Greta fucking Gerwig. So, like, I mean, in one of her earlier roles, I love her. So yeah, it's just such a great movie, and Troy, I know you love this one too. I do, I do. I'm excited. I'm gonna, I'm gonna contain all of my excitement for the episode, though. But yeah, I'm excited to have him on. They are really doing some great stuff. They, their film has really taken off. It's been in the, mentioned in the New York Times on the cover of Rue Morgue magazine. They're getting tons of attention. So for us to have him on is kind of a big deal. So and and, yeah. and talking about a film, The House of the Devil by Ty West, who is personally one of my favorite indie horror film directors. Uh, I, I love his slow burn style. I'm a big fan of that. So super excited, guys. So the next episode, definitely tune in. But we do want to thank the equally studly buddy for being our guest and um studly studly, studly. studly. What, what did we do to get grace with two handsome men two weeks know, in a so row oh god as we're sitting here aging with these two young attractive men but no seriously buddy thank you for taking this big chunk of time to sit with us and talk about this movie and i hope you had a great time we had a great time with you oh yeah it was a blast thank you guys for having me on it was a great discussion hopefully if we do this again it's on a film that is a little a little bit more upbeat instead of Sean Bean wandering in the in the void for a while. But it was a great time, great discussion. Very happy to be talking to you guys. And once again, thanks for having me on. Seriously, this was great, guys. Thank you so much, buddy. Troy, I'll see you same time, same place next week. Until next week. And remember those five-star reviews, people. Come on. <laughs> or else we're going to Tanya Harding. Your so you better fucking get them going, okay? <laughs> All right, talk to you later. Bye.